Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And we just ask tonight as we open your word that these principles that we're learning, that you would solidify them in our hearts and minds in a way that we would live them and learn them and communicate them with a world that is around us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you're joining us for the first time, this is a course on basic discipleship that we're offering in the Institute for Biblical Studies. And if that's a new term to you, we have a 36-hour course of study, only one course left to do, Old Testament survey, though there will be a few courses that we will redo, God willing, in the days ahead, just to update them and freshen them. With that said, this is a course that deals with the nuts and bolts of how to walk with God. In the first session, we dealt with the eternal security of the believer and assurance of salvation. And I had a lot of questions that came through, mainly on the Bible line, uh, some that have come through to me tonight, and I'm going to try to answer them. And so if you have questions, whether you're at home or here in the auditorium, you can leave them here or you can email them as most of them come through, either at the church website or at searchthescriptures.org. And there are questions that relate to the particular topic at hand. I get literally dozens of questions every week. I can't answer them all. It's not that I don't want to. I just would spend my time at the computer all day answering questions. But I answer as many of them as I can to be of help to people. I give first priority to pastors who write me, and I have several hundred pastors, for whatever reason, who follow, search the Scriptures, and they come with a plethora of questions. And since they have a a group that they lead, I try to give priority to them or to urgent questions that I feel like concern children or marriage and issues like that. So let me just review where we've been uh, in topic number two. Topic number one we spent four weeks on. This will be the fourth week on topic number two. You can see on page two what our objectives are. We have seven specific. We then jumped into the doctrine of sin. We defined sin specifically what it is. We looked at a description of sin that it is most often described in terms of actions, but sometimes in terms of attitudes. Uh, every sin certainly is not delineated in Scripture. And so between, on page three, the chart there, between the negative commands of Scripture and the positive commands of Scripture, there's what we might call gray areas of life or not the non-absolutes of Scripture. But they, these disputable uh, areas or gray areas can be solidified in your thinking if you know the biblical principles that govern them. So we had a number of questions that came through on those, and some of them I won't spend a lot of time on because they've come through in the Bible line as well, but I did promise you I would do my best. Um, this person writes, Pastor Carl, I am a little confused concerning alcohol and doubtful things. You seem to say we should not drink so as not to cause someone to stumble. Is the use of alcohol a gray area such that some are free to use it in moderation? So you might want to go back and listen to that lesson. I thought I was clear, but let me just say that um, one of the points I made is that you can argue based on the principles of discernment in the gray areas whether or not to drink. Do you cause a brother to stumble by your example? 
Uh, do you um, uh, cause a brother to stumble by encouraging him to do something that he doesn't have the freedom to do that would cause him to quickly fall? Uh, does it glorify God in the day that we live? Look, the alcohol industries, Ann Weiser, Bush, all of them, they're a wicked industry. I know people don't like to hear that. Sometimes I get chided in letters. Why do you mention the alcohol industry? Because it's a wicked industry. They're destroying the youth of America. I spent 12 spring breaks on Daytona Beach, year after year after year, carrying college students down there. And I saw what they were doing in the 70s and 80s, and it's multiplied 10 times that, 100 times that since those years. I have friends that continue to work in campus ministry, and they said, you just can't believe the influence of alcohol and its propagation on the university campuses in America. It's a very, very sad thing. And someday people are going to give an account. God said, woe to you who give your neighbor to drink so as to make him drunk. With that said, um, does it glorify God? Does it have the appearance of evil? Uh, can I do it in a clear conscience? So based on those principles alone, I think you could argue that it would be very unwise to use alcohol. Beyond that, I think it's not so gray an area because one, God forbids strong drink and he forbids drunkenness. And again, in that lesson, you might want to go back and listen to it. We defined biblically what strong drink was. And that's why to this day, Orthodox Jews, when they celebrate their various um, uh, feasts that God had dictated under the Old Testament law, they use what's called sweet wine and they do not use the hard wine of today as we know it. Another question came in. They said, a prominent leader in Washington, in a Washington, D.C. church, um, marched in a Black Lives Matter march and encouraged others to do the same if they felt the same freedom appealing to Romans 14. Is our participation in this movement a freedom issue as long as we are sensitive to others? That's an excellent question. It's been asked in the Bible line several times in the last month or two. Uh, but let me just say, number one, you have to make a distinction between the Black Lives Matter movement versus Black Lives That Matter. All lives matter, obviously. But we're dealing in a day where there's been you know, a race of people who have been oppressed and mistreated. But that is far, far different from the Black Lives Matter movement. It was started by three women, one a lesbian, one a transgender, one an asexual woman. I'm not sure what asexual is, but uh, nonetheless, uh, they are atheistic, they are Marxist, they are against the traditional family. All you have to do is go online, you can read at their homepage what their commitment is. One of the leaders has been charged in the last week or so with five major felonies. Another was propagating the idea that it was okay to loot in Chicago and steal from stores um, because these are reparations that need to be given. Beyond that, the Black Lives Matter movement is not simply a black movement. There's as many whites rioting as there are blacks and Asians and other peoples. But God says that we are to be separate and we are to be distinctly different. So that's the short answer. I would encourage you to listen to the long answer on the Bible line where I've answered that. And then another question that came in, this is kind of interesting. 
uh, Dr. Brogy, are wearing a mask an issue of personal freedom? Do the principles in the most recent section apply here? This is kind of an interesting question because Christians are all over the map on this. Uh, some think it's a big hoax, that we don't need masks, that uh, you don't have to wear them, that you won't get sick. Uh, I mentioned at our last service at the end of it, encouraging you to wear masks, and I got an email from a nurse from Beaufort Memorial who is listening online thanking me because a 26-year-old nurse in perfect health came down with COVID just the week before and died in Beaufort Memorial, serving these patients. And so, you know, how is this disease transmitted? There's a lot of debate. I'm not a medical doctor. All I know is that most medical doctors, most medical associations, American Medical Association, on and on, who have no agenda, conservative talk show hosts, liberal talk show hosts, are all advocating along with the president that we use masks to defer the spread of COVID. Look, I don't know if it works or not. All I know is that that's what they've asked. I want my testimony to be above reproach. I don't want to make someone unnecessarily sick. I don't want to get sick myself. So when I go into a store as an act of love, ever before it was mandated in our county, I wore a mask. Now you say, well, that's a restriction of my freedom. Look, I remember the same issue when they required seatbelts in the 70s. And people got all bent out of shape. You know, they're taking away my freedom. And, uh, you know, I, and I know there's a big difference, too, I should say, between um, opening the economy and using a mask. That's a whole other issue, and that came in in a fourth question that I'm not going to try to answer. I'm in favor, obviously, of opening the economy. You can't let people not work forever and not bring disastrous consequences. But as an act of love, as an act of testimony to be above reproach, I would advocate the use of masks. So I think some of these principles apply. Uh, certainly there are many Christians, even in our own fellowship, who uh, think that a mask should be worn all the time. And I respect that. And I'm not opposed to them. And I certainly wouldn't want them to stumble over my behavior because I was unwilling to show them love. And I know uh, the issue has come up in a number of emails I've received already since I've been gone about Dr. MacArthur's church. I fully support John MacArthur in the decision that he has made. Um, I do think that they should wear more masks, and he's not against that. And some have misread him because he's come out and made a number of statements, whoever Twitters for him and, and other venues that masks should be worn. But obviously, the large majority of the people there are not wearing masks, and I just pray that they don't get sick. I pray that does not happen because it will end up being a really negative backfiring testimony. It's one issue in California where you can meet outside, but they're putting restrictions on inside. It's quite another issue in Washington State where a pastor, one pastor wrote me, he said, you can't meet inside or outside. By the way, we have a large contingency of people in Washington State who follow our services and have for many years, ever before COVID. Uh, with that said, they're facing another issue altogether in terms of obeying God 
not forsaking your assembling together, and yet at the same time trying to comply with the law and to show love towards other people? So these are great questions. And if you have some, feel free to send them to either search the scriptures if that website is new to you, searchthescriptures.org. There's a drop-down menu, ask Dr. Berge a question. I answer as many questions as I can. I can't answer them all but I will do my best. But those who are here in these sessions, if you have a question as it relates to the material, I will try to answer those on a weekly basis as they come in. All right, so we are tonight dealing with, uh, we've covered the doctrine of temptation. Now we move to the doctrine of forgiveness based on Christ's death. So that's where we start tonight, Roman numeral three. And again, with each of these uh, handouts, there's kind of a summary paragraph that gives you a sense of where the the section is going. So I note here, Christ's death completely and totally dealt with all debts against God, and the benefits of his death and resurrection are applied to anyone who comes and receives Christ by faith. At the moment of conversion, God judicially, legally declares the Christian forgiven. Nothing Nothing we can do can ever serve as a basis for forgiveness. So let's think our way through that. That's where we're going. First, point A, Christ's death is the sole basis for our forgiveness. If you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. If you're new to the Bible, find Revelation, and you can scan back a little bit, and you'll find the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was written to Jewish believers in the first century. Remember, the early church initially was made up of all Jews. In the first uh, several months, only Jews were converted. No Gentiles. The first Gentile conversions do not happen until Acts, the 10th chapter. So there are some books in the New Testament that have a distinctly Jewish tone and flavor because they're aiming not exclusively at Jews, because all Scripture is inspired and is profitable, but they're also aiming um, at Gentiles, but largely at Jews. So let's pick it up in verse 1. We'll just kind of walk through this. He says, for the law, since it, it, it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. So the writer of the Hebrews, who is unknown to us, we do not know who he is. We know who he's not. Clearly, he's not the Apostle Paul because of the way it's unfolded in chapter 1. And you can listen to my introduction on the book of Hebrews if you're interested in authorship. But whoever he is, he is affirming the unique work of Jesus Christ all the way through this book. And it reminds us that the law is just a shadow. Shadows are not bad. Shadows uh, reveal a figure, a shape, a truth in this case. And the Old Covenant was basically a shadow. Colossians 2.17 reminds us of that very truth. It was not the substance. It was just a shadow. It was a picture of what God was going to accomplish in Christ. Otherwise, verse 2, would they have not ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there was a reminder of sin year by year. So if you know the book of Hebrews, he's repeating a familiar argument all the way through here, that the fact that you had to do a sacrifice over and over and over again showed the weakness of the sacrificial system, that it could never take away sin. 
Uh, so they had to offer it over and over and over and over again. Look at verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There's a word in the Old Testament, kafar. It's the Hebrew word for atonement. All the Old Testament sacrifices could do was cover and atone for sin. They could never take away sin. Only the blood and finished work of Christ could have done that. Therefore, verse 5, when he, speaking of the Messiah in the context, the Lord Jesus, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Now, if you're using the New American Standard, different translations do it in different ways, but you'll notice it goes to all capital letters. So that tells you immediately that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. And it comes from the Psalm, Psalm 46. And if you read Psalm 46, it reads, or Psalm 40, it reads just a little bit differently because it's taken from the Septuagint. The Septuagint was translated about 250 years before Christ. There was actually two or three renditions of the Septuagint, just like there's the King James Version and the New American Standard and so forth. But they basically read identically. And of course, in the first century, the number one book that Jewish people used was the Septuagint, because most Jews had lost their ability to speak Hebrew. And so they read Greek. The early century was largely a Greek world, just like most of us tonight are not reading the Greek New Testament, but the English Bible, because that's our lingua franca. That's the Bible that we understand. And so sometimes when you go back and look in the uh, in the psalm that he's quoting, in this case, if you go out into the margin, it will, it will lead you to Psalm 40. You see, well, it says the same thing, just a little bit differently, but it's the same thought. And that's the nature of translation, when you go from an original language to a receptor language. Nonetheless, um, his point is, is that the Old Testament affirmed this truth, that sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. So the fact that God would become a man, that God would incarnate himself in human flesh to become the ultimate sacrifice runs all the way through the Scriptures. Verse 8, after saying above, sacrifice and offering and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. So God was not against this sacrificial system. He instituted it because of what it pictured, because of the shadows that it made concerning the work of Messiah. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. The scriptures speak of me. You could attribute these very words, thus says Jesus, behold, I have come to do your will. And that's why he came to do the Father's will. And the ultimate expression of the Father's will was for the Messiah to die on the cross. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. He takes away the old covenant in order to establish a new covenant. Verse 10, by this will we have been sanctified. Again, this is an important word. We spoke in the first session 
uh, about different words that every Christian should know in their vocabulary, words like propitiation and reconciliation and redemption and, and sanctification. And the word sanctification is used in three tenses in the New Testament. I have been set apart. I am being set apart, and someday I will be set apart, just like in a broad sense we use the words justification, sanctification, and glorification. But by this will, that is the Lord Jesus taking a body to die on the cross, we have been set apart. And he underscores this truth in verse 11 and 12. Notice, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, the Messiah, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So every priest is always standing when he goes into the temple. Why? Because his work was never completed. But Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. He's in a seated position because his work was completed. He made a once and for all sacrifice. And so it says in verse 13, he has sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until, here's a big until in the New Testament, until his enemies be made a footstool, footstool for his feet. Right now, the Lord Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. One of these days, he's going to get up off that seat. And it's probably sooner than most of us realize. He is going to come first for his church. Then the wrath of the Lamb for the next seven plus years will be unfolded on the earth. And then he will literally, physically come to the earth with his church to rule and reign for a thousand years. For by one offering, verse 14, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. If you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have been perfected for all time. Now that speaks of your position. And we'll talk about the difference between our position and our practice in just a moment. But by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind I will write them. He then says, in their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Again, it's an Old Testament quotation. You go out into the margin of your Bible and the New American Standard if you have footnotes, and where does it bring you? What, what chapter? Anybody? What book? Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. It's one of the great central passages in the Old Testament concerning the New Covenant. Every Christian should know Jeremiah 31. It's one of the most critical passages concerning the nation of Israel, but it has a temporary fulfillment in the church today in the body of Christ. But the fact that it is going to be fulfilled in Israel is underscored in that chapter. For the most part, Israel is an unbelief. But the purpose of the seven-year tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, is to bring Israel to repentance. They are going to look on him whom they have pierced, the Scripture says. And all Israel will be saved. The Jewish people in mass will be converted. Not all of them. But by the time the second coming happens, all the Jews, uh, for the most part, will have been converted. And so their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. What does that mean? 
Does it mean that God has a case of divine amnesia? Of course not. But it means God doesn't hold it against you anymore. He remembers it no more. And that's the nature of forgiveness, is you don't hold the debt against someone, just like God doesn't hold the debt against you. And that was the point of the parable that Jesus told in Matthew's gospel. So there's a once and for all, and those words, once for all, uh, some of your paraphrased translations will render it once for all time. That's a key phrase in the book of Hebrews. Once for all time, a work has been finished, a debt has been paid, such that forever God can set you apart as holy. And that's the promise of the new covenant. All right, point B there on your outline. Christ's death completely paid for all your sins, and so we can do nothing to improve upon it. Turn to the book of Colossians for a moment. The book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's that fourth book in that little uh, four-book set. Colossians 2. Of course, he reminds us, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And that's what's happening today in the church. The philosophies of men, and the so-called social justice movement, intersectionality, critical race theory, these are now prominent movements in evangelicalism. It's empty philosophy, it's anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-biblical. And God warns His people not to get caught up in such things. He says in verse 13 of this chapter, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He, God, made you alive together with Him, Christ, having forgiven us of all our transgressions having canceled out their certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This term certificate of debt appears in some ancient literature written by both Josephus and another famous Christian historian. Josephus was a Jewish historian. Eusebius was a believer, a Christian historian. But it was an instrument that would be nailed to the door of a prison cell or if you're under house arrest, outside the house. And on it was the crime that the said person had committed and what was necessary for the crime to be paid. They would take the certificate of debt after the crime had been paid, and they would write across it, and then they would put the Roman imprimatur. Actually, one of these had been found and has miraculously remained preserved they would write the very word that Jesus shouted from the cross, to die. Again, it's a, it's a word that means paid in full. And that certificate of debt was then given to you, such that if you were ever stopped again in the Roman Empire for that crime, rearrested, so to speak, your certificate of debt would prove that the, that the law had been satisfied and you could not be tried again. 
And so Paul uses this imagery that comes out of a first century Roman debtor's cell to help us to see the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. When you are dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, basically without going into a lot of dialogue, that's what we were before we were saved. He made you alive together with Christ, having canceled out your certificate of debt. How did he do it justly? He took it, the scripture says, and he nailed it to the cross. So all those decrees that we have violated, all of the laws of God that we have broken, that were hostile to us because they condemned us, God took it and he nailed it to the cross of Christ and such that Jesus shouts to Telestai. It's not by accident that that's one of the seven statements recorded in the Gospels that he makes. Every Jew, every Gentile knew that word. It was used in tax collector's offices that you faced on a monthly basis. And it was a word written across their certificate of debt, paid in full. So, um, point C, God does not retry us for a sin that has already been judged on the cross. Sometimes people say, well, God's punishing me for something I've done. No, He doesn't punish you for something that you've done. He may discipline you because those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. But the word for punishment in the Greek New Testament speaks of God's wrath and anger. And God never punishes the child of God. He disciplines the child of God, but He never punishes the child of God. And even all discipline in the New Testament is not always negative. Some discipline is not because you've been doing wrong, it's because you've been doing right. And God wants to hone you and shape you and grow you further in Christ. But punishment has been burned out in a substitute. That means God's not angry with you. We studied the word propitiate. Helasterion is the Greek New Testament word. It's found four times in the Greek New Testament. And it basically means God's not angry with you anymore. Why? Because he gave of himself in Christ. God was in the world reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Because when God took on our humanity, he burned his anger out in a substitute. So Paul can say in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're at home and you're listening to me and you don't know you're saved, I couldn't sleep tonight if I didn't know I was saved. Because the Scripture says, he that believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides upon him. God's wrath is on the unbeliever. And if you die under God's wrath, it goes into eternal wrath forever and ever and ever. Psalm 103, 12, because Christ has judged sin as a substitute, God can say, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your sin from you. It's interesting that the psalmist doesn't say as far as the north is from the south, because that's a fixed point. You start going north, and then you start going south. But if you go east, you go infinitely east, you go west, you go infinitely west in the globe. God is using a, a word picture to say that he is infinitely removed our sins from us. 
I have a verse here from the prophet Micah. It's in relationship to the Jew, but it is still true of every believer, just like the writer of the Hebrews quoted Jeremiah 31, originally given in relationship to Israel, but not exclusively for Israel. Abraham, when he was a Gentile and then became a Jew, when God established a new nation through him, said that in him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so we inherit the blessings of Abraham. And so in Micah, God says that he has buried their sin. He's looking at a future day. Again, we've studied this in the Revelation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the function of the tribulation period, according to the prophet Zechariah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, is to bring the Jew to faith. And God says, I'll take their sins and I'll bury them in the deepest sea. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful word picture that your sin has been buried in the deepest sea and God's posted a sign, no fishing. All right, now, so that's the major points that I want to make there. Let's go on to the next one, the doctrine of cleansing based on confession. The doctrine of cleansing based on confession. Turn to 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1. Again, if you're new to the Bible, the apostle John wrote the gospel according to John. He wrote three short epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and of course, he wrote the Revelation. So he wrote five books in the New Testament. We often refer to him as the disciple that Jesus loved. Uh, That's how he's described in John's gospel. Christ had a special affection. Does Christ love some more than others? Well, no. But he had a special affection for John. John, when you put a number of circumstances together, appears to be Jesus' nephew. And I don't know if he was a little kid when Jesus was a teenager. And you know how it is. uh, You've got uh, little children in your family. You just, your heart kind of goes out for them. Maybe you're a grandparent and you you build an affinity for a child and because you just, you just love them. Well, for whatever reason, Jesus had that kind of relationship with the apostle John because they were related, not uh, divinely, obviously, but their mothers were related. And I cover that in my messages in the Gospel of John, if you want to study that. First John chapter 1, and let's pick it up in verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we've seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say 
that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. So where are we going in this section, this first opening paragraph here? 1 John 1.9 is not an invitation to salvation, but an exhortation to those who are saved to maintain intimate fellowship with God. Remember, he is writing to save people that you might have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So he's dealing with the concept of fellowship. It is essential that the Christian not linger in sin, but confess it and forsake it, that he might walk in the light. It is important that we distinguish between positional and experiential truth. So when we talk about 1 John 1, 9, sadly it has been used by some evangelists largely in the late 19th century and early 20th century as a salvation verse. It has nothing to do with salvation. It's not a plea, confess your sins. Come to Jesus, confess your sins, and he'll just forgive you. If that were true, he never would have had to have died. He could have just come to earth and say, look, my father is a forgiving God. How many times have you asked someone the diagnostic questions? I've asked them thousands and thousands of times. Why should God let you into heaven? And not always, but quite often the response is, well, I believe God is forgiving and I've confessed my sin. Well, if that's all that was necessary, Jesus never would have had to have died. He could have just said, my father is forgiving. Be sorry, mean it, and he'll forgive you. Now, this is a verse written to saved people, to people who are born again, the little ones, a phrase he uses in the book. So it's important that we distinguish between positional and experiential truth. A positional truth is something that is true of all believers because of their relationship with God, like the possession of a spiritual gift, something that is true of every believer. I'll be examining this in the weeks ahead. Um, Rick has asked me, because during this COVID time, he was hoping that this would be a time maybe for some people to take the spiritual gifts inventory and uh, try to figure out what their spiritual gift is so that when we're fully functioning again in full steam. And by the way, what's happening right now is not necessarily bad because it's calling some Christians to account. See, some Christians think that my service is just here when we're gathered. And so I can't serve as an usher or I can't work in this capacity or that capacity. And because we're not all gathered in the way we were, I taught, you know, a Sunday school class to kids or an Awana or Look, that's only part of it, and it's certainly gift-related, but this in one sense is a good thing in the sense it should cause Christians to think about what are my common responsibilities. See, we have a common responsibility, for instance, to share the gospel. Every Christian does, whether you have the gift of evangelism or not, just like whether you have the gift of mercy or not, you're called to show mercy. And so there's common responsibilities that we have that God brings people into our pathway that we need to care about them. And and it, I think, causes some Christians because they're like, well, I can't do what I've always done in the church. Well, it might be that God wants us to focus on some of the common responsibilities that we are to do every week when we're scattered and we're not gathered together. Those are important truths. 
So you've been given a spiritual gift. It's different from your salvation. It's different from a natural talent. It was given to you on your spiritual birthday. Just like physically, when God created you, he put into your DNA code certain affinities for maybe singing or athletics or whatever he wired you to do in this life. And no one is more important than another. Everyone plays an important role in the human family, but also in God's born-again family. But a natural talent is not a spiritual gift. And again, we'll be studying this. But that's a positional truth. Whether you know that you have a spiritual gift, whether you know what your spiritual gift is, you've got one. And God wants you to find that spiritual gift, and that should be certainly an area of focus in addition to the common responsibilities we share. Versus an experiential truth does not speak of our position in Christ, but of our practice for Christ, that we might experience what God has for us in the exercise of a spiritual gift. So positionally, I have a spiritual gift. Experientially, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, Peter says. Paul writes to Timothy that, you know, stir up the gift within you. Use that gift you have. He was timid for whatever reason, uh, intimidated by some of the people in the church because he was a younger pastor, and I know what that was like when I became a senior pastor at 33. But you can't let those things stop you if God has called you. So one's positional, the other is experientially. Positionally, number three, every believer has forgiveness of all their sins, past, present, and future. We just studied that in Hebrews 10 and in Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians 2. We looked at the second chapter of Colossians, but the first chapter affirms the same truth. But practically, not every believer is experiencing that forgiveness. Good example, Psalm 32. David did not confess his sin for approximately nine months because it's not until the baby's born that the prophet Nathan comes and points his bony finger in his face and says, hey man, you're leaving it, living a double standard. And Psalm 32 explains what it was like when he lived that double standard and Psalm 51, what it was like when he dealt with it. 1 John 1.9 is a practical verse. So what's the purpose of confession? It has nothing to do with union with Christ. It has everything to do with communion with Christ. It has nothing to do with your relationship with God. It has everything to do with your fellowship with God. It has nothing to do with your salvation. It has everything to do with your intimacy, your closeness with God. So a positional truth on forgiveness like Hebrews 10 deals with the doctrine of justification. 1 John 1.9 is dealing with the process of sanctification, of walking in intimacy with the Lord. Now, one of the words that we dealt with in the first section was the word reconciliation. And it's a Greek word that means to come into a face-to-face -face relationship with God. Before we were born again, we were like this. But when we're born again, and sometimes your paraphrased translations will say, well, we, made God, we were made God's friend. And that's not a bad paraphrase, but it is a paraphrase. We're brought into a face-to-face -face relationship with the living God. 
after we're saved, if this is God and this is me, God never turns his back on us. We're the only ones who turn our back on God, and we do it every time we sin. So let me just say parenthetically, because again, there's confusion in both Catholic and Protestant realms. In the Catholic Church, it's essential that you do not die with a mortal sin on your soul because a mortal sin will damn you. There's different classifications of sin. If you've ever studied Catholic theology, mortal sin, venial sin, so on. And so one of the um, things that you can get is it's one of seven sacraments in the Catholic Church. It's called last rites. But the priest can come and absolve you from sin. Well, look, no one can forgive sin but God alone, period. The Pharisees were right in that statement, and that's why they accused Jesus of blasphemy. No man can forgive your sin. With that said, some in the Protestant realm have falsely taught that if you die with an unconfessed sin on your soul, you can be damned, you can lose your salvation. And this is historically typical Armenian or what today we would call Pentecostal theology. There's exceptions to every rule, so I don't want to broad brush and say this is true 100% of the time. But it's largely a teaching in Pentecostalism that if you die with unconfessed sin on your soul, that you can be damned, you can lose your salvation. And it's a failure to distinguish between a positional truth and an experiential truth. So you can die out of fellowship with the Lord, but you can't die out of relationship with the Lord. So let me see if I can parallel the two. I was in a very boring church service over 40 years ago. And I thought, this guy did not prepare, and he had very little to say, so I took out my Bible, and I, God helped me to produce this chart. And I uh, refined it a little bit as years went on. But look, if sometimes I go on vacation, and I think, goodness, where, wh what has this pastor done? And what is he doing all week long? And is it any wonder the church is so sick in America today? The pastor is supposed to feed the flock. So let's think our way through between positional forgiveness and experiential forgiveness. Positional forgiveness, that all my sin, past, present, and future are forgiven, begins the moment you receive Christ, as does experiential forgiveness. The day you're saved, you're cleansed, you're brought into intimacy with God. Your positional forgiveness, number two, is eternal. Whereas your experiential forgiveness is a moment-by-moment -moment thing. Your positional forgiveness never, ever changes. You can't change it. It's eternal. Whereas your experiential forgiveness, which is what the thrust of 1 John 1 is dealing with, changes when we sin. I'm writing these things to you, save people, that you might have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The basis for positional forgiveness is the blood of Christ. And I might say, because 1 John, we just read it, the basis for experiential forgiveness is the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. Why is that important? Because forgiveness is not earned. It's not merited. You can't bargain with God and say, well, I'll drop an extra 50 in the plate this week. Or if I just cry a little bit more or fast and pray more, that somehow I can merit forgiveness. No. 
It is totally based on the blood of Christ. Now, we'll talk in a moment about true confession versus false confession. True confession might be that there's tears in the eyes and a broken heart God doesn't despise. But you don't merit any kind of forgiveness. It is totally, whether it's the cleansing after you're saved or the initial declaration of righteousness the moment you're saved, is totally based on the merits of Jesus Christ and His shed blood. Point five there, the position of God prior to our justification is He is our judge and we are condemned sinners. And so Paul says in Ephesians 2 and verse 3 that by nature we are children of wrath. That's why when we quoted a few moments ago, John 3, 36, he that believes in the Son has life, he who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. If I have not been born again, then God's wrath is abiding on me, and that wrath, if it's not rectified before I leave this world, turns into his eternal wrath. Whereas, what's the position of God after I sin? Look across the page, 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God and such we are. So the position of God after our justification is He is our Father and we are His children. Before we're saved, He's our judge. By nature, we're children of wrath. And I qualify that, obviously, in terms of age of accountability and so forth. You know, I've done about a dozen funerals for children, my own granddaughter, and they're the hardest to do. But, you know, um, listen, when a little baby is conceived in a womb and then sucked out by a vacuum cleaner, or in late-term abortions have its skull crushed, and pulled out piece by piece, limb by limb, things that the far left doesn't want to talk about. But that's the reality of the platform of one of the major political parties in the United States. And there are Republicans, I might add, too, that are in favor of this. But God doesn't create that baby because every baby is an artistic creation of God Almighty. Read Psalm 139. He, he wove us together in our mother's womb. Now, there are certain laws that God created in the universe, obviously, that bring about conception. But nonetheless, that baby is a creation of God. Does that mean that that aborted baby, God created that baby so the baby can spend an eternity burning in hell? That's stinking rotten theology. And we'll cover that in this course when we deal with the 10 most asked questions about the Christian faith. But there comes a point where a person is thoughtful, convicted, and therefore accountable. And so the Bible doesn't speak of an age of accountability. It speaks of a point of accountability. And the point may be different for different children. But at that point, they're under God's wrath. Might be a 15-year-old. A 10-year-old scared the life out of me one day in my office. That how could a 10-year-old boy be so calloused towards God? Children of wrath versus children of God. Six, the condition for our legal forgiveness is faith in Christ. 
In other words, you receive the benefits of the cross when you come by faith. Faith is not meritorious. It's a work of God in the human heart, and I believe He works in every heart. He gives all men a measure of faith such that they can believe and respond if they respond to what God has shown them. Christ is the payment. Faith receives that payment. Whereas the basis for cleansing, experiential forgiveness, is confession of sin. And again, true confession involves repentance. The word confess itself, confession. It's the Greek word homo legao. Homo, we get our word homo sapien, homosexual legao, to say, to speak. And so the word confess literally means to say or to speak what God says. It's saying the same thing that God says about sin. And so true confession owns sin. It, it, it calls it for what God says it is. And he says, by implication in verse 7, if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Wait a minute, I thought my confession cleansed me from all unrighteousness, verse 9. The two fit hand and glove. Because it says you're walking in the light, there's a choice. That's genuine repentance. It's obeying what you know. And when you choose to walk in the light as he is in the light, then and only then, because that's the nature of true confession. So, you know, if I tell my son, son, I, I don't want you to play near the road, just stay back here, away from the road. And, and I come home and his mother is taking him to the hospital and he has a cast on his arm and he says, Daddy, I'm, I'm sorry for breaking my arm. He hasn't dealt with his wrong. His wrong was he rebelled against my authority. I told you not to play toward, around the street. What he's done is he's confessed the consequence. And that's what a lot of Christians do. They, they, they confess the fruit of sin, but not the sin itself. I'm sorry I feel so depressed. I'm sorry there's no joy in my heart. I'm sorry my wife left me. I'm sorry this, I'm sorry that, but many times they don't own the sin itself. And that's the very nature of confession. And when we do so, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So faith in Christ results in judicial or positional forgiveness where confession of sin results in family or experiential forgiveness. So there's a difference. In salvation, the sinner becomes the friend of God. Somebody criticized my booklet, Would You Like to Have God as Your Friend? The title, I'm just using Jesus' words. Those are terms that he used. I could have called it a dozen different things. The message doesn't change. But you go from being an enemy of God to a friend of God. Romans 5, Paul underscores the same truth. And with true confession as a saved person, you're reestablishing that intimacy with God. There's a great illustration of this in the New Testament in John chapter 13. Let's just turn there briefly. Um, I spent a whole message on this, and so if you're listening online, a few months ago I preached John 13. And of course, it's the Last Supper. They're celebrating Passover during the Supper, verse 2, the devil having already been put into the heart of Judas Iscariot the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, 
and that he had come back forth from God and was going back to God, he got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has been bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example to do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So I make some comments here because this is an illustration of what 1 John is teaching didactically. Look at point number one. The bath symbolized salvation, and Judas did not have that bath. That's brought out here in verse 11. Not all of you are clean. And, of course, he then underscores that Judas was the one who was not clean. He had not had salvation's bath. Point two, the washing of Peter's feet is symbolic of the fact that even though we're born again, even we who are born again have been saved, as we walk in this world of sin, sometimes our spiritual feet get dirty and need cleansing. And, of course, he's using an everyday experience. They lived in the first century world when you went to a great celebration, just like you go to someone's house for dinner, you probably take a shower before you go and get all dressed up. And, but in that day, you walked, and as you walked through either muddy streets or dusty streets, your feet got dirty. When you got to the home, you didn't need another bath. You just needed to have your feet cleaned. And Jesus is underscoring a truth, a bigger lesson that they wouldn't get till later. And Peter underscores that lesson in his first epistle. But there's a lesson on servanthood they would get that night. And it's not simply if they would serve, but how they are to serve. Three, when Jesus Christ tells Peter he was bathed needs only to wash his feet, he is teaching us that the fundamental cleansing that God provides is a once and for all act never to be repeated. Once bathed, always bathed, so to speak. Once saved, always saved. Four, however, we do need to be cleansed from the defilement of sin, so that we might have the, what the Lord Jesus refers to in verse 8 as a part with him. In other words, you can serve God with dirty feet and have no part with him. You can serve God in the energy of the flesh. If there's known, unconfessed, rebellious sin in your life, you won't be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because you're brought into a face-to-face -face relationship that's reconciliation, that's eternal forgiveness. But when we sin, we turn our back on God. We break fellowship with God. And the Spirit of God will not work against your will. So it's only when our will is in line with God's will that we're going to have a part with Him and to serve Him well. Five, you, you can only be effective in serving Christ if you're in fellowship with the Lord, which is impossible with no unconfessed sin in your life. So how do we apply all this? Again, I know people are at different places who are listening. 
But first of all, let me encourage you, if there's just uh, in your heart, there's a, f- a cloud. You know things aren't right. Then get along with God. Make a sin list. Anything that you need to confess, write it out on a sheet of paper just between you and God. And then I always encourage the new Christians when I teach this lesson to them, maybe for the first time, to write 1 John 1.9 right across it. It's one of our memory verses. If we confess our sins, He is faithful time and time again and righteous because it's already been paid for at the cross to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then destroy it. And sometimes our confession involves reconciliation. If you go and present your gift at the altar, and they remember your brother has something against you, first go in, be reconciled with your brother. Sometimes it involves restitution. I had met a pastor here about a few weeks, and a lady came into my office. I'd never met her before, and she'd been robbing the till at the bank. <laughs> I said, it's not a matter of if you're going to get caught, it's when you're going to get caught. You're going to get caught. So I said, you need to make restitution. And I went with her, and we went to the bank officials. The FBI and all these other people came, and it was pretty intense. But sometimes you've taken something from someone that's not yours. You make restitution. You have to be clean vertically and horizontally. So you have a fight with your wife before you go to work. You don't get it right. And all day long, you don't make it right. You say, well, she was 90% wrong. I was 10% wrong. Well, you own your 10%. You say, what if they don't forgive me? Be at peace with all men as much as it depends upon you, Paul will write in Romans, the 12th chapter. Some people you'll never be able to satisfy. But as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Keeping short accounts, or so be keeping short accounts with God allows for continuous growth in service. The old farmer says, as I does them, I fess them. Now, that's poor English, but that's great theology. It's like getting a little piece of sand in your eye. It just drives you crazy until you get it out. And when there's unconfessed sin in the human heart, It just creates a discombobulated relationship with God. And God can't use us as He pleases to. Becomes an irritant. See, after confession, you should distinguish between real and false guilt. Sometimes we still feel guilty because we are guilty. We've not really dealt with the sin. We think 1 John 1 9 is just a good luck charm. My little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, because we all sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. But assuming you're right vertically and horizontally and you've dealt with it, then, then, then assume it is false guilt. Because the evil one would love to take his fiery dart and say, God can't forgive you for that. That's the third time this week you asked him to forgive you. When he wants to forgive you. And when you understand that he'll forgive you over and over and over again, that becomes not a basis to sin, but not to sin. And so we'll be talking in this course about how to walk consistently and holy with the Lord. Uh, The time has slipped away, and I have an an 8 o'clock appointment, so I'm just going to close us in prayer. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you for your incredible grace.
Thank you for the blood of Christ that is the basis for all forgiveness. Thank you that when we come and call upon Jesus in faith and believe that his death and resurrection is sufficient to save, that you credit to our accounts the righteousness of Christ. Thank you that that righteousness is unchanging, that you bury our sins in the deepest sea, you remove them as far as the east is from the west, that you no longer hold them against us, you remember them no more. But you who have declared us holy have called us to walk in holiness. And so we pray that we would do that as your people, that this promise that you've given to saved people, that when we confess you are faithful and righteous, that we would use it not as a basis to sin, but as a reason not to sin. We love you, our Father, and thank you for your amazing grace. In Jesus' holy name, amen.